0: Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, Today, we're going to do the part two on Locke that I told you we were going to do. Locke is a little too complicated even to do a quick summary of him with just one episode, because there's a couple of different areas where Locke is extremely important. Uh, One of them is in political philosophy, which we covered in the last philosophy episode. The other is in um, the empiricism. Uh, Locke is often considered the father of British empiricism. Now, empiricism uh, is really the belief that all of our knowledge about the world comes through the senses, that we're not born knowing everything we're going to know. And for a lot of people that may sound strange, but a lot of the philosopher's Prior to Locke had this idea that um, we were born knowing what we everything we were going to know all of that knowledge was innate. it was born within us. Um, Plato and Socrates were really the ones to get the ball rolling on that. you know in some of the dialogues uh, they talk about the fact that people aren't learning anything they're just remembering things that were already implanted there. And so there was a long tradition of people believing that you were born knowing what you were going to know, um, you just developed it, and it came, became apparent with time and with education. Um, but Locke takes a different approach. He believes that everything we know comes strictly from the senses, uh, and he's not really the first one to do this. Um, there's a uh, 11th century Persian philosopher. Avicenna, who who said that, you know, the mind is a blank slate, a tabula rasa, um, which means when you're born, you don't know anything. Everything you know comes in after birth. So Locke wasn't really the first one to develop this idea, uh, but he is the first one in the Western European tradition, and particularly the British tradition, to really kind of formalize this idea. So he's fighting against this idea. But one of the things that he has to do is he has to prove that we don't have innate ideas. We don't have ideas that we're born with. So in his, um, in his book, he has to go through and talk about you know, where do these ideas come from and disprove um, the idea that we're born with them. Now, one of the things that he talks about in the preface, if you remember, we talked about Descartes and Descartes looking for certainty. Uh, Locke is one of the people, one of the few philosophers, really, until you get much later, who looks at the idea of certainty and says, yeah, we don't really need it. Uh, Locke throws that idea to the side. Um, He has the belief that there are only certain things that humans will ever be able to know uh, there's limits to our knowledge. Uh, and this shouldn't make you stop. Uh, one of the things that a lot of the other philosophers like Descartes, like you know Plato and Socrates, is they wanted a firm foundation uh, from which they could build all of their knowledge. Um, and they wanted everything to be built on things that cannot be doubted. Well, Locke... Kind of pushes that idea aside and says, "Yeah, that's nice, but you really can't live like that." Um, you know, he he expands more on inductive reasoning and talks about the fact that well, you you have to make decisions in real life. You can't sit there forever looking at your plate of food, wondering if it really exists. Um, you can't, you know, be frozen because and not be able to make any decisions about your life because you're still debating on whether you even have an external life. You know, one of the things that he's a proponent of is, well, we have to get the best information we have and make a decision based on that and not worry about, well, do we know it was 100% the correct one? Now, this doesn't mean that he's a relativist that says every decision is as good as every other. He does definitely set up um, hierarchies, ideas that uh, are closer to resembling the world we see and experience are the ones that are more correct. The ones that um, are farther away from it are the ones that are less correct. And he takes a little bit of time talking about ideas themselves and he kind of apologizes for using that word so much. And he talks about they're the fundamental um, mental unit uh, that we we work with it's kind of sounds a little complicated but basically what he's talking about is this is our brains uh, interpretation and reception of something brought to us through the senses Um, and ideas can be clear or they can be unclear and the closer they are to the real world the closer they are to explaining the way things are the more real they are so Ideas are just sort of our mental conceptions of things and our way we visualize things. Uh, My image of a chair is not an actual chair. And this, again, is sort of going back to Plato a little bit, because Plato talks about the fact that, well, the actual chair isn't as real as the idea in the world of forms, the form of the chair. There's the perfect form in the in the world of ideals, uh, in the world of ideas that is the chair, and what we see is just a poor representation of it. Um, Locke kind of turns that around the other way and talks about how our ideas uh, of the chair are just a representation of the chair. They're not the actual chair. So this is something that does... Not go away after Locke. This is something that still gets uh, debated back and forth. So he goes into his critique of what is called nativism. Nativism is that uh, at least some of our ideas were born with, we know them from birth. Uh, and his first argument against that is that he doesn't seem to find any ideas that are universal. Uh, That's his first argument against innate ideas. If we're all born with these ideas, then why doesn't everyone on the planet, regardless of age, regardless of mental ability, regardless of culture, know the same things? Um, So there are no ideas that everyone has before they come to those ideas. You know, he looks at children and the mentally disabled. You know, they don't have the ideas that other people have. Uh, now, they may come to get those ideas with by being exposed to them, but those ideas are not naturally there. And this is one of his other critiques, is that if these ideas are innate, if we're born with these ideas, then children should know these things before they know things that they experience with their senses. And he doesn't find that to be true. Children learn things as they experience them with their senses. Also, he talks about cultural. You know, one idea in one culture that seems like everyone knows this, you go to another culture and it's an idea that nobody knows about. Uh, This plays into what a lot of uh, my critique is of common sense and what people think common sense entails. People think everyone has common sense or everyone, most people have common sense. Um, But common sense implies really that everybody has the same ideas and they don't. The more you talk to other people, the more you realize what you feel is common sense turns out to be the way you were raised um so the ideas you grew up with that's what you see as common sense what your parents taught you what your teachers taught you what your religious leader taught you what your you know peers taught you um you you think of that as common sense but these are all things that vary uh not only from culture to culture but within cultures you know if you look why is there disagreements within cultures people they grow up in the same city have the same education the same you know exposure to knowledge still have different ideas about things. Um, and this is because there are no innate ideas. It has it depends on what you're exposed to and what ideas take root. Um, the ideas about uh, how we're able to do this, he does sort of make the um, assertion that the mind has inclinations towards ideas. And this is something that gets developed much more by later philosophers so we have um for example the simple idea of red we have an inclination towards being able to receive colors as long as we have normal color vision through our eyes Um, but we don't know what red is until we see it and someone says hey that's red um so we we have inclinations for things and like i said we'll talk about this more with other philosophers later uh and bacon kind of talked about this as well when he talked about this a little bit with bacon when he talked about the fact that people um because of our the types of sensory uh perceptions we have the way our mind uh receives the stimulus we all receive it in similar ways regardless of culture we have You know, as long as you're born with normal vision, you have vision. Um, But uh, one of the things that uh, we don't have is we don't have the same word for red. You know, red has different words depending on the culture. And then some cultures have a lot of different words for red and other cultures have maybe one or two words for red. Um, An example I can think of off the top of my head is uh, some of the uh, indigenous peoples of the you know, Alaskas and Canada, the Inuit, uh, have about 20-some words for describing uh, the whiteness of snow. And there's different kinds of white that they register. Whereas most people see there's white snow and, and they all picture it the same. But they have different words because basically these are going to correspond to probably different thicknesses of snow different textures of snow and these are things you need to know if you're going to survive in them so words and ideas while we bring them in through the same type of apparatus we all have the same type of eyes it's our cultural training it's our learning that makes us make the distinctions that where we get these names from when we name things Uh, everything uh, in uh, in the world of ideas uh, for the most part, comes from the external senses. Uh, we see them, we feel them, we hear them, we taste them, we smell them. You know, as as we're as we're developing, and this is where a lot of our ideas come from. Now, he does talk about the fact that we have internal ideas as well. And these internal ideas are things like reflection, desire, doubt, memory, choice. You know, these, these are sort of what we do with those ideas. So we have these ideas and then we um, can then sort of put them through our uh, mental devices and combine them or analyze them or think about them. You know, memory is another type of uh, idea. Uh, my memory is not the same thing as what actually happened in the external world. Um, but yet I still have that idea in my mind. Um, and when he talks about trying to build sort of a truer picture, uh, the, the more true ideas are the simpler ones. And then from those, you build the more complex ideas. Uh, for example, solidity is a simple idea. Uh, we know what it means, we know what solidity is. Um, but then you start combining other ideas like perhaps a color with a solid object. Maybe the object is brown. Okay? Then you start adding you know, smoothness. you add the you know shape, uh, how it's extended into space. And so you're adding these simple ideas until you come up with the more complex idea of a desk or a dresser, or a chair. So it's the simple ideas are the ones that we're least likely to be wrong about. Um, And again, this gets picked up by other philosophers and and argued against. But this is, uh, remember, Locke talks about the fact that we don't need certainty. And as human beings, it may not be something that we can ever achieve anyways, because of the type of creatures we are. So the best we can do is keep getting closer to the truth without ever actually necessarily being able to be there. Um, you know, complex uh, ideas are less certain, especially complex ideas about the outside world, um, because they can, since they're made up of simple ideas, some of the ideas that compose them may have been incorrect, or you might not have all of the Information. This is another reason he talks about the fact that you you may not have certainty, and it may not be something we can ever have because you may never get all of the information about it. But you still need to make choices. So this is not saying, "Oh, we can't have certainty, so we can't do anything." You know, I I look at the meal in front of me, and it smells like it's not spoiled. It looks like it's not spoiled. It feels okay. tastes okay probably can go ahead and eat this Um, doesn't mean I'm correct could be that it was poisoned with something that I can't taste but I still have to make that decision and while I may never have all of the information I try to piece together the best that I have Um, the quality of ideas is also important You know, how distinct are the ideas? How clear are the ideas? How well do they relate to reality? You know, you can have ideas that come to you in a dream, but they don't relate to reality at all. You can have the idea of, you know, a talking horse. Uh, But when you go out into the world, you don't see talking horses. Uh, So this is an example of simple ideas that were put together. You know, we have the idea we can picture the color of the horse, the size of the horse. If we know what a horse is, we can picture what type of animal that would be. Um, We can picture someone talking. We can picture the horse talking. But that doesn't mean we're going to find talking horses in the real world. And so this is what he talks about where the more complex the idea, uh, the more likely there's a possibility that it is not correct, that it does not relate to reality. But again, doesn't mean we should abandon them. Um, He also goes in a little bit with language and language being a problem. And this is something I want to touch on a little bit because this really comes into play when you get into the 19th and 20th and 21st century. You get a lot more philosophical ideas about language. You get people that are trying to make... More precise language. And this is one of the things that he criticizes is that our language is not precise. We're not always using the right word, or we're not always using a word that um, concretely describes what we're trying to describe. And so a lot of the later philosophers that come in, you know, centuries later are working on well, how do we come up with a language that is more concrete than what we use, so we can get over this barrier of language being something that you know keeps us from being able to process reality uh, correctly. And you have some philosophers that kind of jump to the other side and say language is just a system of games and you can never get to that point. Okay, so just to recap a little bit on Locke before we move on to another philosopher. Um, next time we'll be going back to literature um, but Locke is really important in two major areas um, he's important in political theory which is what we talked about in the first episode uh, with Locke versus Hobbes uh, the ideas of you know separation of power the ideas of limited government the ideas of you know the Uh, legitimacy of the government comes from representation of the people you know these are all parts of Locke's philosophy these are all things that uh, the founders of the United States and of you know France when it became a republic all took on a lot of these ideas from Locke and built on them and then what we talked about today sort of the shift in Locke from being where philosophy was mostly interested in one, solid foundations, or it isn't interested in going any further, or thinking that all of our ideas are already there. You know, so he shifts us to empiricism and he really kind of picks away at some of the arguments for ideas being innate, ideas being born with us, and saying, these should be universal if they're innate. Every human on the planet should have this idea if it's an innate idea. Now, he even goes into um, uh, some discussions about God as well. And he talks about this may be one idea that is possibly innate, but it doesn't really seem like it since... Uh, people who are never exposed to the idea of the Christian God, which would have been the the God that Locke would be familiar with, um, have no concept of that God, that different people have different concepts. Um, but he does believe that there's the possibility that uh, humans could come to that idea of God, even if they haven't been exposed to it. But again, I think this is one of those things where you're sort of living in an age where it's starting to be a conflict between religion and science again. And to jump too far or the other into any camp um, really becomes not only uh, something that can alienate you, but it becomes something that can be politically and personally dangerous. And so you do have a lot of this sort of, almost a lot of these philosophers having to prove that, yes, I'm talking about these things, But I'm not an atheist. And and Locke, even we talked about last time, sort of puts out prohibitions against, you know, he believes in freedom of religion, but that doesn't extend to atheists. Uh, He believes that you have freedom of religion as long as it's one of the acceptable religions. And atheism isn't acceptable because that sort of puts up that there is no God whatsoever. Okay, I'm going to break off this episode for now. As I said, next time we'll move into literature. And we're going to talk about um, the Victorian literature a little bit next time. And then the episode on literature after that will be moving into realism. Uh, Realism in Russian literature and realism in American literature. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe. And have a good night.